Thank you very much, Spence. You will understand why following Jack Kemp up to this platform is very much like putting on a dog and pony show after Siegfried and Roy. <clears throat> Jack Kemp is a dedicated public servant who, as he has made clear, is seeking to improve the lot of the people most in need in this country. And I think from my own experience, he recognizes that a country not good enough for all of us is not good enough for any of us. I want to talk with you today about uh, you. You have been exposed and will continue to be exposed while you're here to the views and observations, recommendations, and ideas of people of distinction and achievement who are giving you much to think about and I think, I hope you will take with you. Um, I want to focus on one issue which has had peripheral and yet frequent mention in these sessions. It's not how you can best take advantage of your opportunities in order to further your career and your professional lives, but rather your responsibilities and your obligations. What commitments and contributions you will be called upon to, pay, to make if you are truly to fulfill your destiny. Albert Einstein once told a group of young people, I do not know what your destiny may be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be truly happy will be those who have sought and found how to serve. Those words are, I submit to you, particularly meaningful at this moment when the world is in turmoil and full of uncertainty and we are trying to find our way into a future which is still clouded. In the truest sense, you know, we are living at a time of fear, of despair in some areas of the world, and of hope and promise in others. We are called both the age of technology and the age of science, the, both the age of science and technology and the age of anxiety. And both are accurate because one feeds on the other. As our scientific and our technological prowess increases, so do our fears and our anxieties. In a very real sense, we are living at a time of paradox, a time when we have learned how to achieve most and how to fear most, a time when we seem to know more about how to make war than how to make peace. It sometimes seems more about killing than we do about living. It is a time of unprecedented need and unparalleled plenty, a time when great achievements in science and technology are vastly overshadowed by incredible advances in instruments of destruction, a time when the world fears not the primitive or the ignorant man, but the educated, the technically competent, who has it in his power to destroy civilization. It's a time when we can send the endeavor up and people to walk the skies, and yet, hauntingly recalls Santayana's words that people have come to power who, as he said, having no stomach for the ultimate, burrow themselves downward toward the primitive. This is the nature of the times at which we live. Who are the people of this earth with whom you have inherited the world such as it is? 
I don't know about you, but I don't understand when people talk about millions or billions of human beings on this earth. I can't visualize it. It's simply not within my grasp. But if I look at them in microcosm, then I can begin to understand them and relate to them. And this may be the way your mind works, too. So let me tell you what they look like in microcosm. In the next 60 seconds, 270 human beings are going to be born on this earth. About 90% of them will be people of color, brown, black, yellow, red. Of those 270 human beings now coming into this world, 20 will die before they are a year old. About another 30 will die before they reach their fifth birthday. So of the 270 kids now being born, somewhere around 200, 220, will live past the age of five. You take those youngsters and you multiply them by hundreds of thousands or millions, and you can get a picture of what the human beings of this earth look like. And this is how they look. They're going to have an age expectancy of about 50 years. Most of them will never learn to read or write. Most of them will be sick and tired and hungry a good part of their lives. Most of them will live in tents and mud huts, tilling the soil, working for landlords. Most of them, like their mothers and their fathers before them, will lie under the open skies of Asia, Africa, Latin America, waiting, watching, hoping. To these, your brothers and sisters on this earth, we here in the United States their, represent their hope for tomorrow, their promise of a better life for them and their children. They look to us as the nation that can make things happen. We are, in their eyes, the most powerful nation on earth, and we agree with them. But I submit to you it's terribly important to be clear in our own minds that what national power is at the kind of times in which we live. It is true that national power encompasses military prowess. It is also true that it includes economic strength. But it also depends at least as much on ideas and traditions and those things which are basic to a nation's belief. We need to understand that in evaluating our strength as a nation, our commitment to democracy and freedom is an immensely valuable resource. What do we mean when we talk about our commitment to democracy and freedom? Well, what we mean essentially is that in this country, we are dedicated to preserving the, in the integrity the decency, the dignity of the average human being. We don't talk of the common man in this country because we don't believe that man is common. We believe that every man, every woman, has a common right to become uncommon, to think uncommon thoughts, to believe uncommon beliefs, to become an uncommon person. That's the basic principle to which we are committed as a nation. That's the foundation on which our system rests. And that is what, in the eyes of the world, distinguishes us and what the world expects of us. You remember that when our forefathers issued the Declaration of Independence, 
they said they were doing so out of a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. We have long been concerned about that decent respect because we have always felt that our mission had purpose beyond our shores. In his inaugural address of 1801, as General Powell said earlier today, Thomas Jefferson referred to the United States as the world's best hope. Abraham Lincoln referred to the United States as the last best hope on earth. And, ex and from the beginning, there has been an expectation that we would be that last hope, that we would undertake to perform an experiment in human possibility. So from the beginning, the world has looked up to us to live up to certain standards of integrity and decency and to involve ourselves deeply in what happens in the world and in its effort to achieve greater freedom and justice. And there are certain things to which we have made a commitment. We have always proclaimed our belief in human rights. We have always treasured the human and the humane because we have always cared about what happens to other human beings. And all this has made us and continues to make us a different kind of a nation, one which cannot afford to be uncertain or reticent about its commitment to human values. And these values anywhere in the world are of concern to us because of our commitment. When we seem to be settling for anything less, when we seem to be compromising on these issues, we are seen as betraying our own tradition and weakening the vital source of our strength in the world. So what the world watches is how we behave and what it observes first is our conduct toward one another here at home. The poet Archibald MacLeish once wrote, America is promises. And indeed it is. For you and me, for generation after generation of us, it has been a land of fulfilled promises. And America has been for us a land of fulfilled promises. But for the black and the other dispossessed people in this country, our nation has been a nation of broken promises. And to them, America is a land of broken promises. And our history has been for them a history of broken promises. Let's look back and remember and do it against the backdrop of what happened in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. You may remember that Thomas Jefferson wanted to write into the Constitution a provision that the slaves would be set free, but his colleagues talked him out of it. There were at that time some four million people in our country, and one million of them were slaves. As history moved on, slavery remained an indigestible element in the American dream. From 1790 to 1850, no American president would even mention the word slavery in his State of the Union address. But as Lincoln said during the Civil War, we cannot escape history. Either the institution of slavery or a democracy had to go. Informed people saw the danger coming when John Brown appeared at Harper's Ferry. And then we had the firing at Fort Sumter, and then we were on the road the irreversible road to all the dark and bloody battlefields of a terribly bloody war. Chancellorville, the wilderness, Antietam, Gettysburg. History can move quickly. 
and history can move slowly. 130 years ago, in 1862, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Sixty years later, we dedicated the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. The year was 1922, and a special section of seats was reserved for the segregated blacks so they could come and observe the Festival of Freedom. Two score years later, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of that memorial and told us he had a dream. 200,000 of us were there to hear him, but all 200 million of us in this country knew that the dream that Martin Luther King was dreaming was the same one as Thomas Jefferson had dreamed 200 years ago. Well, 30 years have passed since Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the memorial and dreamed his dream. And one of the greatest challenges we still face in this country, possibly the greatest challenge at home, is how all of us together will be able to do what we can to fulfill that dream, recognizing that millions of human beings cannot be expected to sit in their separate sections and live on a promise forever. To redeem that promise is going to require nothing less than a committed, dedicated, unrelenting effort by all of us, you, me, and all the rest of us in this country, to remove the blight of discrimination and prejudice and squalor that still haunt this nation. You know, the, in this country today, the only boundaries still remaining are the boundaries of prejudice and ignorance. And at long last, at long last, there is at hand the opportunity to eliminate even those boundaries. For the first time in human history, we now have the science and technology, the, the skills and the resources to make it happen. To put an end to the prejudice and discrimination and deprivation and privation which have for so long haunted this nation. The question you and your generation are going to have to ask and answer is will you be willing to do what you can with your great strengths and your great gifts, you who will be leading this country of ours, in order to make this the kind of country it can yet be. And as you look forward to a fulfilled and a fulfilling life, I hope you will do so with a commitment to use yourselves in order to make this country the kind you deserve. I hope you will determine to take your stand against the failure of our society to rid us of hunger and disease and illness that still plague millions of our fellow citizens. I hope you will be ready to stand up against the lack of opportunity and hope facing too many of our fellow citizens here at home and the millions upon millions on this earth. I hope you will take your stand against intolerance and hatred and prejudice and discrimination in all their forms, against those who would set group against group and individual against individual in this country, thereby robbing you of your birthright and your heritage. I hope you will stand up against the bigots, the prophets of doom, the demagogues who would demean you and rob you of what is rightfully yours. I hope you will oppose all of those, whoever they are, who seek answers through desperate acts, 
no matter how noble their cause. And I hope you will determine that your stand will be against life as usual in the face of an unspeakable human tragedy. One thing more to remember. For you to play your part effectively, it will not be enough to carry a banner or chant a slogan. It will mean becoming truly involved, making your commitment a real one, and your determination to play an active part in our society unflagging. In short, it will mean becoming a vital part of your society, doing what you must do, and thereby helping to bring into being the kind of world you are entitled to have. Ralph Waldo Emerson said some words well over 100 years ago that are singularly relevant to you and the challenge you will be facing. He put it this way. If there is a period one would desire to be born in, is it not the age of revolution when the old and new stand side by side and admit of being compared? When the energies of all men are searched by fear and by hope, when the accomplishments of the past era can be compensated by the rich possibilities of the new, this time, like all times, said Emerson, is a very good one, if one but knows what to do with it. I hope, I pray, you will know what to do with it. Thank you.